We're going through uh, um, Ephesians. Are you enjoying that? Okay, now, we do study verse by verse. And I want to explain a little bit before we get into the study this afternoon. I just want to give regular reminders of the importance of the study and the sound teaching of God's Word. Because a lot of preaching today, uh, it's all too common that preaching has become this, like this cheerleader approach. Okay, to kind of fire people up, kind of exhort them and, 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 and give a kind of a pep talk and send you out the door. And that exhortation or that zeal burns out by Tuesday because there's no understanding or knowledge of the Word of God. So there's a difference there. You know, there, in, in many churches today, there's this, you know, get them charged up and emotionally traumatized and you just send them out the door. I believe that God has called me to, I'm confident that He's called me to teach His Word, teach God's Word to God's people so they understand what God has said through the Scriptures. And when you come to an understanding of what the Word means so that when you're reading it, you understand it, you will be transformed from the inside out. And then you don't have to have an expectation of coming here to tell me how you should live your life. Because when Christ does a divine work in us, through the understanding of His divine eternal truth, of which is unchanging, heaven and earth will pass away, right? We're continually changing. The one thing that will never change is the eternal, everlasting Word of God. So my job and the conviction I have is to rightly divide the truth, to spend time in the study of God's Word so that I can properly and rightly present it to you, first and foremost, in a way that honors Him. So you'll find that, you know, I'm not going to tell like too many jokes or, or try to entertain you, but I do want to teach you God's Word. Um, I believe that um, God's people shouldn't be condescended to with, you know, a childlike rendering of the text or an hour full of just stories. So it's very important to me, and I just want this understanding to be clear as we proceed as a body of believers growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ that I encourage you to come here readied. It means we get good rest and we're prepared to receive the everlasting Word of God, right? So that we can both be engaged together as we unfold the truths within God's Word. And you will find that your whole brain and your whole system within will be reprogrammed day by day by day by day by day as He conforms us into the image of His Son. That's what this, what this is about. Then we can be effective, powerful lights of witness to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ where we live and breathe. I was down in PB yesterday to a couple who goes to this church. They have a, a business right there in Garnet, right in the middle of it all, man. And you walk in that place, and Christ is so glorified through their lives, through their business. And it's like a little witnessing depot down there. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. So I was so blessed just to see that lived out and practically worked out through the lives of two folks, a couple, who goes to this church. So let's pray and that uh, our hearts will be prepared, that our eyes of understanding will be opened to the teaching of God's Word today as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 16 through 22. So let's pray. Father, we certainly thank you and praise you for your goodness and for your grace, for your mercy and your truth revealed through the Scriptures. And may we, Lord, be prepared to receive what you have for us today, understanding what it is to be unified in your Son, Jesus Christ, and what that means as far as us being unified together as one because we are in Christ. Prepare us now, Lord, to understand that you'd be glorified through our lives day by day in Jesus' name. Amen. What we've been studying over these weeks is theology. We've been studying the mind of God. Okay? We've been studying the mind of God and how he chose us before the foundation of the earth. How God preordained his plan. How God, before the foundation of the earth built his church in his mind. We're understanding, we're coming to understand the mind of God. It's incredible. A lot of theology. It's important to remember that chapters 1 through 3 are very theological. We're understanding our individual position in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are perfectly righteous, perfectly cleansed. You can never be more holy in the sight of God than the day that you bow your very life before him. Perfect righteousness. That's positional righteousness. We are perfectly righteous in Christ. Together as a body, we are perfectly unified in Christ, which we're going to look at today. We are one in Him individually, and we are one in Him corporately as a body, a universal body of believers in Christ as one. That is our position. 
And that's what chapters 1 through 3 are defining for us. When we get through chapters, when we get to chapter 4, chapter 4 through 6 is practical application of the truths revealed in chapters 1 through 3. So when we get to chapter 4, I mean, it even begins with, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That calling is a call to salvation. So what he's saying is, now that you know all of this divine truth about who I am and who you are in me, this, therefore, is how you live your life. This is how you conduct yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. Paul is helping us to understand the unity of the body in these verses where we're at today. Galatians 3.28 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. We understand our position, right? Now, in understanding our position, we can contrast our old position with our new position. Our old position was that we were without Christ. Ephesians 2.13 says that our new position is that we are in Christ. We were aliens, alienated. But in Christ, we've been made a holy nation, 1 Peter 2.9. We were strangers in our old position, strangers to God, strangers to his kingdom. Ephesians 2.19 says we are no longer strangers. We had no hope in our old position, but as Ephesians 1.3 says, He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We recall chapter 1, where God master planned the universe before the world began. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we see the process and God's work of salvation. What we were, what we become, and what we are in Christ. So here we are in the middle of this concept of unity that's being discussed here in the scriptures. We're unified as one. Do we always live like it? Practically speaking? No, we certainly don't, do we? Praise God for the position, right? Praise Him for His grace. That's our position. We don't always live like we're one, but yet we are. This is a position of oneness. And that's the message of verses 11 to 22. Jew and Gentile was the context, right? The Jew and Gentile have become one in Christ. That was the context last week because that was the division in Paul's day. The Jews were referred to as those who were near because they had the temple and they had this, they had a national identity. The Gentiles were far off. They didn't have that access. We learned about the sign of the circumcision. There was only something that pointed to something greater than itself. Signs don't save. Just like baptism doesn't save. Okay? Just because someone is baptized doesn't mean they're going to heaven if they're not a true child of God. When one gets saved, they come to the end of themselves, they surrender their life to Jesus Christ, they follow the commandment of Christ and get baptized, identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're saved and you've yet to be baptized, we're going to want to take care of that. But you're saved by grace. Now, it's important that we understand who we are. That's the context. Who are we in Christ? Who are we as his church? In any job setting, you go get a practical job in the world. You don't know what to do until you understand the position that is required in that job. Amen? Okay? The same is true for the Christian. You can't just say some prayer and you push him out the door and say, Okay, now go honor Christ. Go, go live a life that honors Christ. Right? Because what has to change? Our understanding of who he is... And now who we are in Him. Once we understand our position, once we understand who we are in Christ, and what that means as a body of believers unified as one, then we can effectively honor Him, glorify Him in the world and within the church, serving one another. When we get to chapter 4, we'll see how that plays itself out relationally. Because we're going to see relationally what it means to one another within the body of Christ according to the gifts that He's imparted to each one of you what the relationship is between us and the Holy Spirit, and that we don't grieve Him. We'll learn about our relationship with other people via our mouth. Speech. Evil speech. Corrupt speech. Lying. Coarse jesting. Coarse jesting means to take something perfectly innocent and put a, a, an evil little perverted twist on it. Right? The late night TV hosts are masters at that. Our relationships towards other with the things hidden in our heart. Bitterness. Unforgiveness. Anger, hatred, sexual immorality. Talk about relationships between family, husbands, wives, children, people we work for, bosses, employees, things of that nature. And then finally, when you live a life 
lived out like that, you're going to face opposition. And chapter 6 of Ephesians tells us how to stand and resist the devil, putting on the whole armor of God. That's where we're going. But for now, we're looking at the definition of unity. And this is an area in which we have to lead as the church. We're in unified. Jesus said they will know you by the love that what? You have for one another. See, the world is full of strife. The world will always be full of strife. There's always dissension. There's always hatred. There always will be that division in the world because of what? Sin. It's been filled with strife and opposition since the beginning. We looked at that last week. Back to the fall. We have strife between nations. We have terrorism. We have bombings. We have genocide, euthanasia. And I want to encourage you as a Christian, don't become overly political. Become very biblical. Don't badmouth leaders in the nation. We're called to pray for them. We're called to be the example. We're called to submit to their authority because their authority comes from one, God. If you need a reminder, you can go to Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. Very important. We are to be prayerful warriors because we're the only ones whose prayers have power because we are in Him. There's territorial pride on the highways, amen? Power, man, behind the wheel, right? Power. If you're in my lane, you're in my way. The divorce rate, rate continues to skyrocket even within the church. It's terrible. Strife. Division. All of this stems from one basic problem. It's this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. The product of a wicked heart, Isaiah 57.21, says that there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. No peace. Because of wickedness, there's the impossibility of peace. It's impossible to have perfect peace. There's outward false peace, things like that, right? Never get to the core. But sin at its core, you know what it is? Selfishness. The core of all sin is self. Where everyone is looking out for themselves, you can't have harmony, amen? You cannot have harmony when everyone's looking out for themselves. The only place where peace occurs is when self dies. The only place where self can truly die, you know where it is? The cross. Calvary. The place in which Christ was crucified. One of the books that's for sale back here, The Calvary Road. I read this once a year just to get me back to the place of, it ain't about you big fella, right? Written by Roy Hashan. Listen to this. Our relationship with our fellows and our relationship with God are so linked that we cannot disturb one without disturbing the other. Everything that comes between us and another, such as impatience, resentment, envy, comes between us and God. The barriers are sometimes more than veils. Veils, though which can, we, we can still, to some extent, see. But if not removed immediately, they thicken into blankets and then to brick walls. And we are shut off from both God and our fellows. We become shut-ins to ourselves. It is clear why these two relationships should be so linked. God is love. That is, love for others. And the moment we fail in love towards another, we put ourselves out of fellowship with God. For God loves him, even if we don't. Recommended reading. Go buy that book. The Calvary Road. You know, people, people fight for power even within the church. Amen? People want power. They, they desire to have power that they don't. They want to usurp authority where they have none. It causes division. It causes strife. They jockey for position even in the church. You know, leaders have a heavy burden and responsibility. And oftentimes, the place of subordination is a great place of peace. Great place of peace. A lot of times, people want to jockey for position in areas that they don't, they're not even spiritually gifted for. God has gifted each one of us individually and uniquely for the purpose of functioning within the body for his glory and his honor. So where does this come from? Keep your finger here in Ephesians and go to James chapter 4. Go a few books to the right to James Still, we're in introduction here. James chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Back to Ephesians. In Christ, guys, in Christ, self dies at the cross. Amen? Remember Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ came, he was crucified, and he removed the alienation, us. He removed us who were alienated from him, bringing peace in verse 13 of chapter 2 of Ephesians through what? Brought near by what? The blood. We're brought near by the blood. Covered by the blood. That's the key to the whole passage is brought near by the blood. Thing that separates men from one another, sin and selfishness. The thing that separates man from God, sin and self. It's really simple. Sin and self. See, enmity has been broken down. That middle wall of separation broken down in what? Christ. Bringing us together as one. That is the message today. Unified in Christ. You know, separation in society is common, right? You got separation between blacks. You got separation between whites. You got separation between Hispanics and the Asians. If you go down to a prison, you will see that literally like blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians. It's just totally segregated. If you, I encourage you to go to a prison sometime and do prison ministry, just get concept of something. It's a whole other world. Whole other world. In Christ, all of that is removed. Okay? And there's unity between the rich and the poor, educated, uneducated, governing leaders, and the common people. Racially. Red, yellow, black, and white, we are precious in this side. Amen? Amen? All of that is removed in Christ. And if one of us holds on to that, there's only one thing in the way. Self. Self. That is it. Last week we studied the enmity between man. Jew and Gentile was the context. This week we see the enmity between sinners and a holy God. Holy, righteous, pure, just, also full of love and mercy. Therefore, when this sin was removed, this is what happened. We became one. Whether you like it or not, really, whether you like it or not, you and I, your brothers and sisters worldwide, are one in Christ. One. And that leads us to verse 16. And this is our study. Let's read verse 16. I'm going to start at 14 because it kind of begins the thought here. So verse 14, chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Again, context, Jew and Gentile. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, on your bulletin you'll see, verse 16, we are unified in reconciliation. Unified in reconciliation. And that's where this oneness comes from. Reconciliation. To reconcile means to achieve peace and union between parties previously at conflict. To reconcile parties previously at conflict. Warren Wiersbe, great Bible teacher, writes a little uh, illustration of this, um, and I'm quoting. A man stopped in my office one day and said he wanted to get help. My wife and I need a recancellation, he blurted out. I knew he meant reconciliation, but in one sense, recancellation was the right word. They had sinned against each other and the Lord, and there could be no harmony until those sins were canceled. A God of love wants to reconcile the sinner to himself, but a God of holiness must see to it that sin is judged. God solved the problem by sending his son to be the sacrifice for our sins, thereby revealing his love and meeting the demands of his righteousness. 
it was truly a re-cancellation. Re-cancellation of debt. When it said that Christ came to reconcile people to God, it means that he, check it out, propitiated God. He propitiated God. Now, to learn how to spell that word alone, just jot down these little verses. Romans 3.24 In Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Hebrews 2.17 Talks about propiti propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2.2 2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And 1 John 4.10 says this, And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means satisfaction. To propitiate means to satisfy. So, Christ satisfied God's perfect standard of holiness. Christ satisfied God's justice. He's a just God, amen? Not only is He a just God, and Christ propitiated, He satisfied the Father... Because God is just, He also, because of the sacrifice, justified us. To be justified is to be declared free from how much blame? All blame. In Christ, you are justified if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you will pay for your own sin. Being in Christ, you are justified. You're declared free from all blame. That's your position. So Christ propitiated God. He satisfied the wrath of God. God is a God of love, amen? The reason he's got to love is because he's got to hate. He hates sin. He's merciful because he's full of wrath. Jesus met the standard and appeased, satisfied God the Father. Christ did. Sin must be judged. You know, Colossians 1 says that we were at enmity with God. Listen to this. Verse 21, Colossians 1. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Okay, we understand what reconciliation is now, right? Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. That means that no valid accusation can be held against you if you're in Christ. Isn't that great? No valid accusation against you. The devil can come with all kinds of lies, but they cannot be held against you because you've been justified by the blood and brought near to God through the finished work of Christ. Justified. But yet God's standard of just, being just was met. Christ appeased God. He satisfied the wrath of God. And the reason is, Colossians 1.20, going backwards, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You know, there's only two categories of people in the world, period. Jesus said in Matthew 12:30, He who is not with me is against me. Two categories, period. No one can be against Christ and be for God. You can't be against Christ but be for God, quote unquote. You can't be. It's impossible. Because there's nothing but alienation and separation and they are without peace. Christ is the only propitiation to God the Father. Christ is the only appeasement to God the Father. The only one. Truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. Christ is the absolute truth. So, being at peace, we no longer need to fight one another, amen? But we do, don't we? Thank God for His grace. Right? By His grace. So be thankful that the peace that we have is not based on us and what we do or don't do. It's based on Him. Amen? Amen. So again, what do we see here? Position, right? This is the position that we have, not only individually in Christ, but corporately as a body. We have peace, perfect harmony within the body, positionally speaking. So we're unified in reconciliation, leading to verse 17. We are unified in peace. Look at verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. This is a word, euangelizo, where we get the word evangelize. To announce what? Good news. Gospel means? Good news. Christ came gospeling peace. He came announcing peace. He came to give the good news of peace. That was the message of Christ. Peace. Peace between God and fallen man through, through the propitiation that he would make on our behalf. 
He would satisfy, he would appease God the Father. He gospeled peace. So, you had those who were far off being what? Gentiles. Those who were near were identified as the Jews because they had the, the covenant, they had the temple, they had that relationship with God as a nation. But they still needed to be redeemed individually. So they were pictured as those who were near, and then those who were far off were the Gentiles just given to paganism full on. It kind of reminds me today of the sinners who are separated from God who are just living an outward, immoral, debauched life, and it's very obvious, right? And then there's those who they've grown up in church, and they have this outward righteousness that some of them may not be redeemed. Some of them may not be near at all. They just appear to be near. The point is that both Jew and Gentile need to be reconciled together to God and to one another. So their national heritage, the Jews, played no part in them being truly righteous by God just because of their identification. You get it? Just because someone belongs to a church or is joined together in some some ceremony doesn't make them truly near to God. There has to be a true work of regeneration inside. Amen? A true brokenness. Christ doing a work in us that brings us to a place of repentance. Repentance. So, both those groups needed a redeemer. Both Jew and Gentile needed a redeemer. And it came through the peace that Christ provided. Isaiah 52.7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation. Isaiah 57:19. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off, to him who is near. That's actually what's being quoted here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. Remember at the birth of Christ? Remember that? Luke chapter 2. Suddenly there was, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Okay, remember your justification, right? You're justified in Christ. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God in our justification. Peace at His birth. Peace announced in the Old Testament of the coming promised one. Christ. And He came and preached peace, verse 17, to both, far off and those who are near. See, we have the message of peace because we have peace with God. You're a believer, you got the message of peace. The peace to mankind, the only one hope, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace came with a message of peace. We bear witness of that reality and that relationship, and we are to present that same peace to those in our lives, first of all, by our very life. we got to show people that we have peace with one another, amen? If they can see we have peace with one another, it might point them to the Prince of Peace, the one who we have everlasting peace with, right? Unification, unified in Christ. Unified in peace. Unified in reconciliation. And that leads us to verse 18. We're unified in access. Unified in access. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to, to the Father, let me read that again. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So being reconciled, we have access. Access to who? God Almighty, the Holy of Holies. Access to God. Very important here. Access, check this out. Access, this word, does not simply mean just some liberty of approach to God Almighty. Okay? You don't all of a sudden, I believe, just have access to God in and of yourself. Okay, this word for access is used three times in the New Testament. Once right here, verse 18, again in Ephesians 3.12, and then again in Romans 5.2. It means this. It means access by way of introduction. By way of introduction. Not just that you can just barge in. It was a word that was used in ancient times for someone who would introduce an individual to a king. You just don't roll up in ancient times to some king, Amen. You don't roll up to him when he's sitting on the throne and just verbalize your request. Right? You just didn't do it. You could lose your head for things like that. So that's the idea. 
Christ did not die simply to open up access to God the Father. What he did is he provides proper introduction to the king. You see what I'm saying? He provides proper introduction. Remember in the Old Testament, the high priest? He would enter, he would enter through three areas. You had, you had the outer court. You had the holy place. And then once a year, he would step into the holy of holies. And he would make atonement for the sins of Israel once a year, making that sacrifice. Three areas. Now, Jesus, our great high priest, ascended through three heavens. The atmospheric heavens, that's the blue sky, the clouds. Right? The universal heavens, the stars and the planets. And then outside of that is the very dwelling place of God Almighty. Christ, passing through all three. Hebrews chapter 4, mark this down. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Then in verse 16 it says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, without proper introduction, no one comes to God on their own. Nobody. There's only one door. There's only one proper introduction, and there's only one proper introducer. Amen? Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is the only door. He's the narrow gate, right? One at a time. And again, we've said this over the weeks. It's not you and your baggage of ideas about who God is. It's, you don't conform God into your image. We're made in His, right? You know, shepherds, what they would do, and they still do, they would bring, when they're out in the fields, they would bring at nighttime their, shep their sheep into some temporary fold. They would build up little mud walls or whatever, and there was just one little access in and out. And they would literally lie down. So any intruders would have to do what? come in over them. Jesus is the door. He laid down his life for us, providing us access into the fold. We have access through Christ. And that's what Paul is declaring and defining through these scriptures. We're unified in him in one because of what Christ has done individually for us, and we're unified together having access. We're unified in that access. You get it? We're unified in access to the door. Jesus. Notice we see the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, we learn that we have access to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit, right? Look at verse 18. For it is through Him, Jesus, we both have access by God the Spirit to God the Father. Right? Doctrine of the Trinity. For through Him, Jesus, the God-man, God the Son, we have access by God the Spirit to God the Father. Work of the Trinity right there. And that leads us to verse 19, where we are unified in citizenship. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So Paul's kind of closing down this section of thought now using three metaphors. We're fellow citizens, a household, and then later on he uses the metaphor of a temple or a holy temple. So the results of this reconciliation are Gentile. Context is meaning that Gentiles are also fellow citizens with the believing Jews, right? We are outside of Christ. When you came to faith in him, you were brought near. You are brought near. No longer a foreigner. You are a citizen, not on this earth, but Philippians tells us that we are citizens of what? Heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. You're just passing through here, brothers and sisters, right? Passing through, sojourners, pilgrims. We have a home. This just isn't it. This is temporary. Temporary dwelling to bring glory and honor to the one who's redeemed us, Jesus Christ. That's the only reason you're here. To have an influence and impact for his kingdom. For his kingdom. And, you know, the most effective way for us to do that is to be one. To understand our position. Hey, brothers and sisters, we're one, man. Whether you like it or not, we're one. Right? 
We must love one another. We must. And if we don't, there's one thing in the way which we learned, is which is what? Self. What do you do with the self? Make your way to Calvary each and every day, moment by moment. As soon as you start to think a thought contrary to the truth of Almighty God, confess it before God and repent of it and move on. And show, love of, show acts of love and kindness to one another. Get in the habit of it. Amen? Come on now, somebody. Fellow citizens. Previously foreigners, now made citizens. We were foreigners, we are now citizens. We have a heritage. This is a theocracy of the heart, I like to call it. Israel at one time was under a theocratic rule. God was governing agent over that nation, period. Right? They went on to make kings for themselves and so on. Theocratic rule right here, brothers and sisters, right? Because he's right here. He wants to rule and reign your life. Don't fight. Don't resist. It's miserable if you do. Miserable. Members of a household. Fellow sons and heirs, right? That's very personal. There's nothing more intimate than a family setting. Amen? Family setting. You are now sons. You're part of a household. We're part of the household of God. Citizens of a heavenly nation. Hebrews 3.6 says this. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are. Whose house we are. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. A family is a lot more intimate than the state. Much more intimate than the state. Or some ruling agent outside of that. We're brought in that close. We are sons, heirs to the throne. Our citizenship in heaven. Now, if he accepts us, shouldn't we accept one another? Should we not? We must. We must. They will know you by the love you have for one another. So this is not some power struggle. It's not some power trip. We're to be unified as individual parts that make up the whole body. Mouths, eyes, ears, arms, hands, pinkies, thumbs, the whole nine, right? Making up one, making up the whole body. Leading to verse 20. Okay, we're citizens. We're a household. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, these men, the apostles and prophets, they're not the foundation. Okay? They're not the foundation. They laid the foundation, check it out, they laid the foundation of doctrine that was connected to the cornerstone himself, the foundation himself, Jesus Christ. The apostles and the prophets. You have prophets which foretold the future, foretold the coming promised one, and you had the, the, the apostles who announced that reality and the fulfillment of it. He's the foundation. They laid it. Amen? You with me? Built on what? The chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. When you would build up a temple in that day, when you would build a temple, any large structure, you laid down deep a big, heavy, solid cornerstone. Cornerstone. Did some background, some looks at archaeology of the past, and I have no idea how they carved these things out. I have no idea how they moved them. They would lay them down. They were laid deep. They were laid wide. And then the walls of the structure had to be conformed to the walls of that cornerstone. And the whole superstructure was built off of that cornerstone. The cornerstone, without it, the building would crumble. You needed the cornerstone. Everything that was built up from that point was built up from these walls, this cornerstone. All the way up to the last piece that was put on any structure was the capstone. The cornerstone went down first. The last thing to put on these things or these buildings, these structures, these temples was the, the capstone. It's interesting that Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The first and the last. The cornerstone and the capstone. Capstone is the resurrection. The capstone of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Cornerstone laid down capstone 
place last, connected the entire building together. You with me? I'm sure that the Gentiles of this day would have thought of the, when they thought of Cornerstone, they would have thought of the Temple of Diana, which was, that was our opening study, which wasn't recorded, unfortunately. Technical difficulties. We did a little background of Ephesus and Temple of Diana and that type of worship. And I'm sure the Jews would have thought of Herod's temple. Both temples, nonetheless, were made with what? Hands, and they were both destroyed. Both destroyed. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says this. says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11. There's no other foundation. Anything, any faith built on anything else but the foundation of Jesus of Nazareth is, a, is, is something that's built on shifting sand. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, just mark this down under that section of unity on the cornerstone, verse 42. Jesus saying this, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118, by the way. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That's the church. And whoever falls, now listen to this, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Okay, follow me with this now. There's two responses to Christ that are being conveyed here. You have a response of enmity, which is hostility, anger, or hatred. That's enmity. And then you have a response of apathy, this lack of interest, lack of concern. Yeah, I know, I see what he's done, but I'm kind of undecided about this cornerstone thing, right? Two responses being conveyed. Now, take an earthen vessel, and an earthen vessel is made out of that which is clay. Okay? Take it and place it on the concrete. Take a large boulder, if you're strong enough to lift it up. Pick it up. Drop it on the earthen vessel. What's going to happen to the clay pot? Crushed, smashed. Okay? That represents hostility against the cornerstone. You'll be crushed under the judgment of God. The other one is this apathy. An apathetic view of the cornerstone, an apathetic view of God. Yeah, I'll come and I'll listen, I'll listen, I'll listen, I'll listen. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, Jesus, yeah, right. Take a clay pot, got the concrete, hold it up here and drop it. What happens to it? It breaks on the stone. So both of those reactions to the, scorn, to the cornerstone are both destroyed. They're both destroyed. Enmity and hostility, anger and hatred against him, crushed under the cornerstone. Apathy, yeah, I'll go to church, it's cool. I'll go to the church picnic. I'll go to every Christian event that rolls into San Diego. I'll hop on the bandwagon, right? I even know how to say amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? But there's been no transformation. There's been no relationship established. That's being broken on it. Both are destroyed. 1 Peter 2.9 says that Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to unbelievers. Stone of stumbling. Isaiah 8 also says that. 1 Peter is quoting it. Daniel pictured the coming Messiah is a great stone cut out of a mountain without hands. This, this cornerstone. It falls on kingdoms and crushes them. Jesus. We're unified. Here it is. On the cornerstone. Is the body of Christ? We're unified on the cornerstone. Unbreakable. Amen? Unbreakable. Everlasting. Justified. You can stand firm on the fact that you've got peace with God through Jesus Christ. You won't break through that cornerstone. Unbreakable. And that leads us to verse 20, 21. 
So we know the cornerstone. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay, it's, it's not on which, but it's in whom. This cornerstone is he. This cornerstone is intimate. This cornerstone is the person of Jesus, the Son of God, whose God came to earth in the flesh, ascended to heaven, and will come back. So from here, from this cornerstone, check it out, from this cornerstone, all of this building goes up. The building rests and stands on this cornerstone and is built up from there. You know what the meaning is here? That every single part fits snug perfectly together. Perfectly together. His church is positionally perfect. Remember context, this whole theology. This is our position individually. This is our position as a unified body, as a building. Every stone, just like this, is he preordained and preplanned. That's you and me. Fitly framed together. And the, the design is that every part will do its function. It grows to be what kind of temple? Holy temple. Not a pagan temple. A holy temple. That's our position. It's a structure of individuals. Previously empty. You were an abandoned building, man. Abandoned building before Christ. Empty. Like a crack house. Without crack smokers in it. <laughs> Empty, right? Crack houses are really eerie places. It's good. You can do ministry and stuff. Like if you're into like street type of witnessing, you got to be real strong in the faith. You got to be real wise and all that. But what a sad place of being lost in that whole world. You know, I have friends who've been, you know, on crack and just how empty they are. It's that temporary high, man. That temporary fix. With anything, not just dope, but jobs, work, career, whatever. It's just temporary fulfillment that dies. It will die. Materialism will die because there's never anything good enough to satisfy your little earthly taste buds, right? A holy temple. So here's the third of the three metaphors that he uses. We had citizen, household, and now a holy temple. And it grows to be a holy temple. That's you. That's the habitation of God, guys. It's the habitation of God Almighty. You. We are that holy temple, which leads us to verse 22, whereas we are unified as, the, as his dwelling place. Unified as his dwelling place. Verse 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is a permanent home. You got that? This is a permanent, everlasting dwelling place of God right in you. Right in me. The dwelling place of Almighty God. That is heavy. God lives in you. Is that heavy? Amen. That is heavy. Heavy, deep, eternal. The cornerstone. I stand on it, but yet He lives in me. Wow. Wow. You know, in Genesis 5 and 6, the Bible says that God walked with His people. He walked with Enoch, right? He walked with Noah. Remember that? In Exodus 25, he decided to dwell with his people. Where did he dwell? Tabernacle, right? Israel fell into sin time and time again. You know what it caused his glory to do? To depart. Caused his glory to depart, 1 Samuel 4. And in 1 Kings 8, later on, God dwelt in the temple made with hands. His dwelling place was the temple. But again, Israel sinned. His glory, Ezekiel 10, departed. His glory departed. In John 1, God's dwelling place, what was it? The body of Jesus Christ. And man nailed him to a cross. The dwelling place of God, the Messiah, God in living flesh, nailed to a cross. The most brutal form of capital punishment the world has ever seen. Today, through his spirit, he dwells in his church. And it's not in these four walls, I'll tell you that. It's not in the most beautiful temple ever created by hands. It's in individuals who make up the holy temple. That's you and I, amen? That's where he dwells. Not a temple made with hands. He dwells in the hearts of those who trust Christ. Period. We're one. You're perfect. Built together. The perfect dwelling place of God. Perfect in position. That's the context of this whole study. We'll get to the practical stuff in chapter 4. And you'll be convicted 
convict the daylights out of us, right? But this, this is a temple that he continues to add to, right? He's birthing in you, he's birthed life into you, and he's working in you to bring you into a place of deeper conformity to himself. Amen? Becoming more and more like him as you yield to him. It's two-way. He does the divine work, but yet at the same time, we yield or resist, one or the other. And he's also corporately building the church together. It's undone. And guess what? When it's done, he's coming to get it. He's coming to get his church. When the last block is put into place, he will come, he will return in glory to take his church to be with him. The dwelling place of God. And then Ephesians 4, 3, you know what it says? The context of unity that we're talking about? Just jump over there for a minute. Chapter 4 through 3. You know what the first applicable truth is in chapter 4? Look at verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. After all this theological breakdown, when he gets there, he talks about walking lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Okay? Endeavoring to keep the unity of peace. Are you ready if he returned today? Is your temple ready if he came back today? Would you be ashamed if he returned today? Are you in right standing with a brother? Because you're unified in one positionally, is there someone that you need to get right with so that you can practically be what you are in reality? Positionally unified. I encourage you. God's prompting your heart today. You're not right with a brother or sister. Go to that brother or sister. If there's a brother that you think has something against you or a sister that you think has something against you, go to them. Make it right. You don't need to war for power. It causes disunity. Let God bring you to the place He wants you to be. God will put you in the perfect place according to your giftedness so that you can function as that body unified. Amen? That's what we are. Is your temple pure? For the non-believers, perhaps you've heard this truth over and over and over and over again. You can have heavenly citizenship today. You can be part of this heavenly household. Part of the holy temple, but you got to give in, you got to give up, you got to surrender to become part of the family. So you're either an earthen vessel that's either standing on the cornerstone, or you're an earthen vessel that will either be crushed by it or be broken on top of it. We are one in Christ, ladies and gents, unified, positionally righteous. Therefore, what should we do? Let's walk in a manner together as one that brings glory and honor to him so that the world can see, wow, they do have love for one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we again praise you that in our weaknesses we can come boldly before the throne because of proper introduction that's been granted to us by your son Jesus Christ, that we are pure, holy, and above reproach in your sight. All is a gift all because of your grace, all because of your mercy, and even the faith to believe granted as a gift. We thank you for it all. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for the body of believers here within this setting and just worldwide. And may we, Lord, function as a body properly and rightly loving one another, being patient and allowing you to bring us to that place of ministry, Lord, as you've gifted us, but always to be engaged with one another and with you so that self will not get into the way of bringing proper glory and honor to you. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here who doesn't know you today, who's not part of the household of faith, who's not a citizen of heaven, who has not come to a place of rightly standing on the cornerstone of faith, the one and only door to everlasting life, Jesus Christ, the door of the sheepfold. I pray that you'll prompt their hearts and then you'll move them towards you. And we pray these things again in great thanks. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.